Well, good morning, folks. If you grab your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, why don't you turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we are going to hunker down today. If you have uh, the Pew Bible, it's page 950. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be as we wrap up uh, our sermon series on the Bible entitled Text, uh, answering one final time, what does the Bible do for us? What does the Bible do for us? What does it do in our life? What does God intend for it uh, to do in our life? And today we're going to see finally that it helps us to stand in the midst of the skirmish, to stand in the midst of the spiritual skirmish that we are all in. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're going to be. I trust you're there. Let's pray. We'll dive right in. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you in particular for this uh, Christmas season as we ponder um, that which is inconceivable, the incarnation of your eternal Son, Jesus, who um, eternally existed with you in sweet fellowship with you and yet in great humility uh, gave that fellowship up to become a human being, to be fully God and yet to be fully man, to come as, as a child, as a helpless, um, dependent infant into our world to save us, all of us, from our sins. We are so grateful for that. And I pray, Father, for all of us as we have enjoyed and continue to enjoy this Christmas season that our love and devotion to this Christ child, uh, this Son of God and Son of Man, would continue to grow and that we would marvel at all that He is and all that He has done and all that He continues to do for us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be among us this morning, that you would speak through me, that I might say things that are accurate and faithful to your inspired word, and that you would speak to the hearts of these people here today with Bibles in lap as they examine your word from Ephesians 6, what you have to say about how we can stand strong in the midst of the spiritual battle that we all face. And so help us, we pray, In the name of Jesus and God's people said, Amen. You know, as a young boy, like many young boys, um, one of my favorite games growing up was to what we would call play swords. And if you have had or do have young boys, you probably know what I mean by that. We would play swords. We would find a sword of any type, whether it be a stick, right, or any kind of toy sword, and uh, we would hold it in our hands, and we would hit each other mercilessly, right? We would play swords. Um, We would hit each other, boom, 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 right? You know what I'm talking about. We would play swords. And I love playing swords uh, as a child. And so one uh, Halloween... My mom thought it would be a wise idea to get me, uh, to dress me up as a ninja, because I always wanted to be a ninja, and I wanted to have a ninja sword. Oh, there I am. Yep, so so there's a picture of me as a ninja when I was, I don't know, five or six, something like that. And you can't really see the sword, but you see my cool ninja outfit, which if you look closely, the pants are actually football pants, but they were white and close enough to a ninja pants, right? And I actually did have a real ninja, you know, like top. I don't even know what you call that. But, and I had a cool black belt. And then you see me about to wield my sword, right? There it is. It's kind of tucked away. And uh, who knows? I'm about to pull it out and hit my sister or something, right? Because if she's a pumpkin and I'm going to carve her up or something, I don't know, you know. Um, we like using swords as, as children. I liked, you know, messing around. And my friends and I, we would flail around with whatever it, it was that we would call our swords, right? And uh, if you've seen boys playing swords, you know 
that they really don't know what they're doing. They're just kind of hitting each other, right? There's no strategy. There's no defense, right? You just kind of hit each other until somebody bleeds or cries, and then you're done. Um, and so I would do that quite often, just kind of flail around. We wouldn't know to def- t- really how to use our sword. Uh, I was reminded of this this Christmas, as uh, you probably know, about a week ago, um, the, the new Star Wars movie came out, right? I don't know if you've seen it or not. Um, but uh, with the, uh, the coming Star Wars movie uh, on the market is uh, our lightsabers, right? Those are popular again. And so my nephew uh, had a lightsaber and my son got a lightsaber for Christmas. And so what were they doing over Christmas break? Playing swords, right? They were playing swords. So all Christmas break, I was reminded of my sermon as they uh, whacked each other around, right? And I said, that's what I'm going to talk about. We need to, we need to learn as Christians how to wield a sword. Yes, as a Christian, you need to know how to use a sword. Of course, I don't refer to a physical sword, but I'm talking about the kind of sword that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 6, a spiritual sword, which Paul calls the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So today, we're going to end our series on the Bible with one more thing the Bible does for us. Namely, it helps us stand in the skirmish. It helps us take our stand in the spiritual skirmish that we all are in. And so before we examine what the sword of the Spirit is, I want us to see the context of its use. So I hope you're in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to kind of briefly look at the context of Paul's use of this phrase, the sword of the Spirit. It starts in chapter uh, 6 verse 10, and then we'll run through chapter uh, 6 verse 17. The context of the use of the sword of the Spirit is the spiritual skirmish that every Christian faces. So I I trust that you're there, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, as we see the context uh, of the use of the sword of the Spirit, which is simply called, it's the skirmish, right? First of all, I want us to see the mandate. I want us to see the mandate in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord. I want us to see the method, verse 11, put on the full armor of God. I want us to see the motive in verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And then I want us to see the means, therefore, put on the full armor of God. So let's take a look, first of all, at the mandate in verse 10. The mandate in verse 10, Paul begins this way, finally, he's really wrapping up his letter at this point, finally, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So we see the mandate, right? And what is that mandate? It's simply the command for us to be strong. So if we want to be engaged in spiritual warfare, Paul says the first thing you need to know and the first thing you need to do is you need to be strong. As a warrior, you need to be strong, right? But notice, where does our strength come from? Does it come from ourselves? Do we muster it up? Notice he says, be strong in the Lord, right? And in his mighty power. The spiritual skirmish takes strength, but our own power is insufficient. And so God must supply us with the power that we need to be strong in this skirmish. So how are we supposed to do that? How are we to be strong in the Lord? Well, it's through the method of putting on the spiritual armor that he's given us. So let's take a look then at verse 11. He says, put on the full armor of God. 
And here's the reason why. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. We've seen the mandate. Be strong. Be strong in the Lord. How do we do that? Well, we need to put on our armor. We need to gear up. We need to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand when Satan and his schemes come upon us, right? So the way in which we stand strong is by putting on God's protective gear and it enables us to stand against these schemes. What are these schemes? Notice it's plural. It's not like Satan just has one scheme. He has a multiplicity of schemes and uh, just to be rather uh, short, what we see is when we look at uh, what Satan does in the Bible, we find out that he has numerous schemes. Satan accuses. He accuses us. Satan afflicts. He afflicts us. He lies to us. He tempts us. These are the schemes of Satan. And Paul says, listen, we need to know what these schemes are. Satan is the one on the attack. We are the one who are putting on the armor to be on the defensive, right? So we need to understand understand his offensive philosophy, so to speak. We need to understand how he plans to attack us, to accuse us, to afflict us, to lie to us, and to tempt us so that when he does, we can defend ourselves. Um, Taking you back in time, it's kind of back in time day for Trey. Uh, Back when I was playing football many, many, many years ago, um, I was a first team defensive cornerback, which means I was kind of out on the end trying to cover the guy that they would pass to. And I was first team. But on offense, I wasn't so good. In fact, I was lousy at offense. So I was second team running back. Uh, second team running back, and as second team running back, playing with the second team offense in practice, you probably know how it goes. What happens is you stick the best guys on defense, your first team defense, aside from me, somehow I got double duty. I don't know how that works. But when our first team defense played our second team offense, I somehow got stuck on the second team offense. I don't know how that works. But second team running back, and what the, what we did as a second team offense, it, we, we, we ran a scout offense. What that means is that we as an offense uh, ran the plays, not of our own team, but we ran the plays of the opposing team, right? So whatever team we were playing that next week, whatever kind of offensive plays they would run, that's what we as a second team offense would do, right? And uh, second team offense, I hated because what inevitably happened is every time they gave the ball to me, I would get crushed because I was on the second team offense, and I was playing against the very best uh, up front, and so I just dread it. I, they, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. They call a running play, and I'm like, oh no, you know, I'm getting the ball, and I get the ball, and I close my eyes, and the first team defense eats me alive and spits me out, right? And then we do it again. Uh, but, but there was a point, right? Our defense needed to know what the offense was going to do to them, right? They needed to know what kind of plays, what kind of strategy, what kind of schemes, if you will, that offense was going to do to them. Folks, this is what Paul says. He says, we need to put on the full armor of God because Satan has schemes. He is on the offense. We are on the defense. And we need to know that the plays, if you will, that he is going to run against us. So what then is our motive? What motivates us to be strong in the Lord and to put on the full armor of God? Well, he tells us in verse 12, notice the motive. For our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Paul says this is the motivation. This is the type of team that is coming against us, right? Our struggle is not against human beings, but against spiritual beings. He uses, uh, literally, he uses wrestling imagery, right? The imagery of hand-to-hand wrestling. Literally, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against, notice all of the terms that he used, right, to describe this litany of words to tell us about our enemy against rulers, authorities, powers, spiritual forces of evil. He multiplies these words to to tell us that we are going hand-to-hand with heavy hitters in the ring. I remember in high school, Somehow, athletic uh, analogies abound. In high school, we would have this large mat, and it was a wrestling mat. And um, we would wrestle as a part of our uh, PE athletic experience. And much like getting the ball as a second-team uh, offensive player, I didn't like wrestling either because the result was the same. I got crushed for the most part um, because somehow the coach thought it was a good idea to give a big guy a little guy in the ring. To me, that's not fair, right? I don't know. I should get to wrestle a guy my size. It never worked that way. So I was wrestling generally kind of bigger guys. Most of the guys were bigger than me. And uh, so I, I realized if I let them get their hands on me, that I was toast. My only advantage was that I was a little faster. So I would kind of, you know, try to scatter around the ring, trying to get them off balance. But it was hand-to-hand combat, right? And Paul uses this wrestling imagery. He says, we wrestle against these spiritual heavy hitters. So what means has God given us? What means has God given us to be able to defend ourselves? When I was in the ring in high school, I would have liked some armor, right? That would have been nice to defend myself. Well, thankfully, in the spiritual world, we have a whole um, array of armor to defend ourselves from Satan and his schemes. Let's take a look then at verses 13 through 17, the means. Therefore, he says, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything... To stand. Stand firm then. Notice, what is our posture in spiritual warfare? It's not offensive, it's defensive. Three times he's told us, stand, stand, stand. Verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith uh, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So here, what Paul does is he gives us a list, right? Six pieces of armor that a, a typical Roman soldier of his day would wear. And he likens these, uh, this armor to six pieces of spiritual armor that we need as Christians to protect ourselves from Satan's attacks. And what he does is interesting. He actually describes uh, the armor in the very order that a Roman soldier would put them on. And most likely, Paul writes this letter, uh, guess what, uh, in a Roman prison. And so he sees every day Roman 
soldiers. And so he says, this is what the spiritual life is like, right? We need to put on our spiritual armor. And while we could spend uh, a whole sermon on each of these pieces, I want us to focus on the very last. I want us to focus our attention on the very last piece of equipment. Paul calls it the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to help us see how we can stand in the midst of this spiritual skirmish. So let's take a look then more specifically. What is this sword? What is this sword that is to help us stand in the skirmish? It's called the Word of God. Remember, what does the Bible do for us? The Bible helps us stand in the midst of this spiritual skirmish. I want to take it phrase by phrase, right? Two phrases. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So let's take a look at the first phrase, right? Paul calls it the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. It's interesting because when you look in Greek, there are two words commonly used for sword. Both translated sword, but they're two different words. The first one uh, in Greek is uh, ramphia, essentially. And this word refers to a very long sword. A very long sword. It's a large bladed sword. It's about 40 inches long or more. And this type of sword um, would be wielded with two hands because it was so large. And generally, a soldier would kind of flail it around when he is uh, uh, surrounded by his enemies. He's just protecting himself. He's flailing this large sword left and right simply to preserve his life. He's flinging, uh, just flailing away with, with, without abandon, just hoping that he'll hit something, right? Um, and so in my mind's eye, it looks something like this. I really wanted to use a, a lightsaber uh, from Star Wars. It just didn't fit as well, so we default to Lord of the Rings. Um, so uh, the sword on your right, right, this is Aragon. Uh, and notice, the type. if you're familiar with the, the movies, you'll you'll remember and recall that the, his sword, it's a very long sword. Uh, very long, very big. You can kind of see it there on the right. That's, that's the first type of sword that the Bible talks about. However, the type of sword that Paul talks about here in Ephesians chapter 6 is not that type of sword. There's another type of sword. It's called in Greek the machaira. And this is a very different sword altogether. It's a short sword. Uh, it's almost like a dagger, maybe up to 24 inches long. And it was used very differently. Instead of just kind of flailing around aimlessly, it was used with, uh, for very precise hand-to-hand combat. So, so if it's you and the other guy, you don't, you don't want your big sword. You pull out your makaira, right? You get your small dagger because it's, it's you and it's him and you want to defend yourself and you want to have very precise thrust. Much like Frodo's sword here, you can notice it's very short and uh, kind of wimpy, but that's the kind of, that's the kind of sword that Paul talks about. It's precise. So, Keep that in mind. This sword that we're supposed to wield as a Christian is is very precise. Second, Paul calls it, it's the sword of the Spirit, right? It's of the Spirit, which means that this sword comes from the Spirit. It is given by the Holy Spirit to every Christian, making the Word of God powerful, effective in our life. So, We've seen that it's the sword of the Spirit. Let's take a look at the second phrase, right? Next, he identifies this sword, this machaira, as the Bible, as the Word of God. He says, which is the Word of God? Which, on the surface of it, seems pretty simple, right? Okay, we have a sword, and it's, it's precise, and it's in its movements, and it's the Word of God. But Paul actually goes into more detail here, because he doesn't use the regular word for word, which is the normal word for Bible, logos, he uses a different word. He says, literally, 
which is the rhema in Greek. It's the rhema of God, the word of God. Now, rhema in, in Greek refers not to the Bible in its entirety, but it refers to very specific statements in the Bible. Logos, it's the Bible as a whole. So I would say, look, I have my logos in my hand. It's all of the Bible, right? But Paul uses the word rhema, and rhema are very succinct, specific words, phrases, sentences that are from the Bible. So, putting this together, what are we to learn about this sword that we are to yield? Putting the phrases together, we see that both the image of the sword and the image of the word is that of specificity and preciseness. Pastor Tony Evans explains it really well, so I'll quote him here. He says, Paul says that if we want to be victorious in spiritual warfare, we must be able to draw on, listen, listen to this, we must be able to draw on specific truths from the Bible in specific situations to counter specific temptations and attacks from the enemy. He says you can have the entire logos of God on your shelf or on your lap and not be well armed for spiritual warfare. Because you don't know how to draw on the rhema of God when you are under attack. He says, but a believer who is filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit and who knows how to handle the sword of the Spirit in specific spiritual encounters can win any battle in any realm. So that, my friends, is what we're talking about. Specific phrases from the Bible to help us defend ourselves from Satan's schemes. I'm hoping this is sounding vaguely familiar. How is a person to take specific statements and verses and phrases and sections of the Word of God and defend themselves from the accusations and the temptations and the lies and the afflictions that the devil will bring? Does that sound familiar? Do we know of anybody in the Bible, in the Gospels, who might just have done that? Let's think. Sunday school answer is Jesus. Yes, Jesus did this, and we see it in Matthew 4. So let's close our time by looking at the standard of the Savior. Right? We've seen the spiritual skirmish that we're in. We've seen the sword of the Spirit that we're to to yield to protect ourselves. But now let's look at how this actually works in real life. And we can't go anywhere better than the life of Jesus, right? So Matthew 4. If you have your Bibles, turn from Ephesians 6 all the way to the very first gospel, Matthew chapter 4. There in Matthew chapter 4, we see what hopefully is a familiar section of Scripture. The temptation, the temptation of our Savior. Matthew chapter 4. First of all, I want us to see the context. I want us to see the context of the spiritual skirmish that Jesus had. And we can learn lessons uh, about our own spiritual skirmish from the context of Jesus's spiritual skirmish. And then secondly, I want us to see the content. I want us to see the content of the skirmish. That is, what can we learn about how Jesus used his Machaira, right, against Satan? Well, let's take a look at the context first in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. Matthew 4, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
And so, uh, because time is limited, I want to point out just three observations. Three observations about the context of Jesus' spiritual battle that I think we can then take and apply to our own. First of all, notice, Jesus' spiritual battle followed a great spiritual victory. His spiritual battle came after a time of great spiritual victory. Because if you have your Bibles open, you can see it. You have Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation of Jesus. But what happens in Matthew chapter 3? What happens at the very end of Matthew chapter 3? There is the baptism of Jesus, right? Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. He comes up out of the water. And what does his heavenly Father say? This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And it was after this, it was after this time that Matthew says in verse 1, then, then came the trial. And so Jesus' spiritual battle followed a great time of spiritual victory. And friends, this is often the case for us as well. We should not be surprised then if some of our hardest times of struggle and temptation come after some of our greatest spiritual highs, after some of our greatest spiritual victories, after some of our greatest times of obedience and intimacy with the Lord. We often let our guard down and we are vulnerable to attack. Second, not only did his battle follow a great victory, but second, Jesus' spiritual battle was divinely ordained. Did you catch that in the text? It's, it's surprising. Let's read it again. <clears throat> then Jesus was led, he was led by the Spirit, by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let's not be confused here. God was not tempting Jesus. The devil was the one doing the tempting. But this was a Spirit-led God ordained trial that the Father had for his Son. This was a divinely ordained spiritual battle for Jesus. Why is that? Why? I have pondered this. Why would this happen? I think there are lots of good reasons. Let me just share a couple. First of all, in the Gospels, Jesus is portrayed as the ultimate Israelite, the ultimate Jew. A, a type of the nation of Israel, so that where in their history the nation of Israel failed God, the ultimate Israelite, Jesus, the ultimate Jew, would not. He would succeed, right? He would succeed. Just as Israel failed in their temptations in the desert for how many years? Forty years. Jesus would face how many days in the desert? Forty days in the desert. And he, unlike his brothers, would succeed. In addition, Hebrews 4.15 tells us this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So, similarly, friends, as we think about our own battles, God may allow the enemy to attack us, to tempt us, so that we can learn to use our, our sword, right? We may never know how to use our weaponry, the word of God, specific phrases and verses and chunks, until we are tested, until we are tempted. And so we're learning on the go. Third, notice this other thing about the context. Jesus' spiritual battle not only followed a great spiritual victory and was divinely ordained, but notice third, his spiritual battle came when he was most vulnerable. 
when he was most vulnerable, humanly speaking. Notice verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That has to be like the biggest understatement in all the Bible, right? 40 days without eating, and Matthew simply says, and he was hungry. I'm sure he was. Notice, Satan didn't start... Satan didn't come at the beginning of this 40 days. Satan didn't come at the middle of the 40 days. But when did he come? At the end. He came at the end. He came when when Jesus was most vulnerable, humanly speaking. He was hungry, an understatement. He had to be physically wearied, emotionally drained. And then Satan came. So friends, it shouldn't surprise us if our spiritual battle comes when we too are most vulnerable after a very long day in the office or in the field, after a a high time of stress with your children, maybe an emotional low. It may be then, when we too are most vulnerable, that Satan may strike. So we've learned some lessons from the context. Let's wrap up by seeing the content of the skirmish. What can we learn from Jesus' example of using his Machaira to stand in his spiritual skirmish as he faced three temptations? Let's read the text and then we'll make three more observations and apply them to our life. Verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. Notice, friends, Satan is quoting scripture. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended to him. So, what can we learn as we see Jesus Wield his word. Again, each of these temptations could be a whole sermon in and of themselves, but let me just simply make three observations, three applications for us. How did Jesus use his Machaira? Number one, notice, Jesus memorized scripture. Jesus memorized scripture. In each of these three temptations that Jesus faced, uh, he quotes the Bible, right? He quotes the Bible from memory. Every indication is, is that when he was tempted, he quotes the Bible from memory. It's, it's not like in the heat of the temptation, in the moment of the trial, in the moment of decision that Jesus said, wait a minute, let me pull out my Torah scroll and let me look up the verses. I know it's back here somewhere. Oh, wrong scroll. Let me get this one out. Let me look, right? That apparently is, is not what happened. Jesus quoted scripture from Memory. He had to have the truth hidden in his heart in the moment of trial and temptation. And friends, we desperately need this as well. Now, certainly some temptations we face, we have time to open our Bible and to look up a verse. I'm not saying that's bad. But sometimes in the heat of the moment, we need to know the scriptures to have it in our minds so that we may not sin 
against the Lord. So Jesus, Jesus memorized his scripture. Secondly, Jesus knew his scripture. Not only did he have it in his memory, but he knew it, right? Not only could Jesus recall specific phrases from the Bible, but he apparently knew all of his scripture well, right? He knew all of it because each time he, he quotes from which book, remember? He quotes from Deuteronomy, okay? So each time he's tempted and he has in his mind uh, scripture memorized and each of them are from Deuteronomy. My guess, my guess is that if he needed a psalm, he would have had a psalm. If he needed to quote Jeremiah, he probably could have done that. And if he needed to quote from the book of Amos, he probably could have done that too. I don't think Jesus just knew the book of Deuteronomy, right? Why did he choose Deuteronomy? Because each of those temptations needed a specific verse, and they happened to be in Deuteronomy. The point is this. Jesus not only memorized his scripture, but he knew his scripture, the breadth of it, right? And so this is a, this is a hard question for me, and I'm going to ask it for you as well and let it sink in. We should ask ourselves, if our victory or our defeat in an instance of temptation rested on how well we knew the book of Deuteronomy, would we win? Or would we lose? Would we win? Or would we lose? And if Satan tempts the Savior this way, certainly we're not off limits. So Jesus memorized his scripture. He knew his scripture. And thirdly, he understood it. He understood the scripture. Not only did he have it in his mind, not only could he reference Amos or Zechariah or Deuteronomy or Leviticus, right? But he understood its meaning. He understood its meaning intent. Did you notice, this is hugely significant, did you notice that Satan, in his temptation of Jesus, quoted the Bible? Friends, if you're a Christian, that should scare you to death. You should be very, very concerned about this. Because if Satan can use the Bible in a way that God did not intend it to be used to tempt Jesus? Friends, friends, can he not do the same for us? Let me just tell you, from pulpits across America, and I pray it's not mine, people speak the words of the Bible out of context, not meaning what God intends for it to mean. And in doing so, Satan speaks and tempts through them. Friends, Jesus knew his Bible well enough to look at this verse that that Satan quoted, and he could say, that's not what that verse means, Satan. That's not what that means. That's, you quoted it out of context. That's not what God intended. You're twisting it. You're leaving portions out of it. And friends, if Jesus needs if he needed to know his Bible well enough to recognize when Satan quotes Scripture wrongly, how much more, how much more do we? What this means is that if we don't understand Scripture like Jesus understood it, then we can fall prey to Satan and his scheme. So it's not enough to memorize and to know Lots of scripture. Friends, we need to understand it progressively, day by day, day by day, as we intake and understand the word of God.
And if we do these things, if we memorize and if we know and if we understand, then we too can do what Jesus did. We too can wield the sword of the Spirit and defend ourselves from the attacks of Satan. So I want to ask in closing, how's your swordsmanship these days? How, how is your swordsmanship? Does your wielding of the word of God, does it look more like my son and his cousin using their lightsabers, flailing them aimlessly? Is that what it looks like? Is that what mine looks like? Or does it look more like Jesus using specific phrases and verses within their context from memory facing the temptations of Satan and winning, standing firm, being strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. My prayer is that we would look increasingly like Jesus and less and less like my son and his cousin. Let's pray.